going to turn to 2 Kings chapter 3. In the Church Bible, it's page 369, or in the larger print Bibles, 568. 2 Kings chapter 3. And we'll read the whole of chapter 3. Joram, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned for 12 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. Now Misha, king of Moab, raised sheep. And he had to pay the king of Israel a tribute of a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So at that time, King Joram set out from Samaria and mobilized all Israel. He also sent this message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? I will go with you, he replied. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. By what route shall we attack, he asked. Through the desert of Edom, he answered. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. What? exclaimed the king of Israel. Has the Lord called us three kings together only to deliver us into the hands of Moab? But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Elisha said to the king of Israel, why do you want to involve me? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to deliver us into the hands of Moab. Elisha said, As surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not pay any attention to you. But now bring me a harpist. While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came on Elijah, and he said, This is what the Lord says. I will fill this valley with pools of water. For this is what the Lord says. You will neither see, you will see neither wind nor rain. Yet this valley will be filled with water. And you, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also deliver Moab into your hands. You will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You will cut down every good tree, 
block up all the springs and ruin every good field with stones. The next morning, about the time for offering the sacrifice, there it was. Water flowing from the direction of Edom, and the land was filled with water. Now all the Moabites had heard that the kings had come to fight against them. So every man, young and old, who could bear arms was called up and stationed on the border. When they got up early in the morning, the sun was shining on the water. To the Moabites across the way, the water looked red, like blood. That's blood, they said. Those kings must have fought and slaughtered each other. Now to the plunder, Moab. But when the Moabites came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and fought them until they fled. And the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites. They destroyed the towns and each man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered. They stopped up all the springs and cut down every good tree. Only Kir Haraseth was left with its stones in place. But men armed with slings surrounded it and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom. But they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. This is God's word. And it's about a battle that cannot be won. It can't be won here in 2 Kings chapter 3, and in fact, it can never be won. This battle in Moab is just one manifestation of a battle that goes on all through history. But it can never be won. It's the battle to succeed in any lasting way while living in defiance of God. That's the battle we're talking about. And this passage gives us a glimpse into how that battle goes. First, we're introduced to the two main characters in this particular battle. Joram and Misha. Enemies of God, enemies of one another. One thing about history that can be confusing, particularly ancient history, is that standardized spelling is a relatively new thing. What that means is when we come across figures in ancient history, we often find their names are spelled in a few different ways. It's not something we find just in the Bible. If you read about the ancient kings of Britain, you'll find the same thing. And I mention that because Joram, who we meet in verse 1, is sometimes spelled Jehoram. And that can get very confusing because there are a couple of Jehorams around at the same time. This one is in Israel, the northern kingdom, but there's another one in the southern kingdom, Judah. We'll hear about that one a bit later in 2 Kings. And some of you may have a translation of the Bible that uses Jehoram here. But the NIV is trying to help us by consistently referring to this one as Joram. 
In any case, verse 1 tells us Joram is Ahab's son. So he's king of Israel in the north. When Ahab died, it was actually Joram's brother Ahaziah who became the new king. We heard about him in chapter 1. He's the one who fell through the lattice of his house and then consulted Beelzebub to see if he'd get better and then ended up dying in his bed. And chapter 1 told us, because Ahaziah had no son, his brother Joram succeeded him as king. And here we meet Joram. What kind of king is he? We'll look again in verse 2. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. So apparently Joram is not as crazy about Baal as his parents Ahab and Jezebel had been. But that doesn't mean Joram is any better than his parents. It just means he doesn't put all his evil eggs in the same basket as his parents. He's just as much an idolater as they were. That's what verse 3 means when it says he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat. A few generations before this, Jeroboam had started the national slide into idol worship. He did that by setting up two golden calves in Israel. And Joram might not be dedicated to Baal, but he is dedicated to worshiping things that are not God as if they are God. So now we've met one of our main characters, Joram in the blue corner. Next in the red corner comes Misha, verse 4. Now Misha, king of Moab, raised sheep, and he had to pay the king of Israel a tribute of a 100,000 lambs and the wool of a 100,000 rams. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. This rebellion was actually mentioned in the very first verse of 2 Kings. Apparently, Misha rebelled as soon as he heard about Ahab's death. But then Ahaziah had his accident and he died. And so nothing gets done about the rebellion until Joram becomes king. And this rebellion is over payments Misha was obliged to make. Now, I don't know the value of 100,000 lambs and the will of 100,000 rams. But I guess it would be a heavy burden for a small state like Moab to come up with this. And presumably they had to pay this every year. It would be a big drain on Moab's economy. And so Misha hopes that Ahab's death will be a time of weakness and disorganization in Israel. He takes it as an opportunity to rebel and try to break free from this obligation he has. And it's probably worth mentioning that we have a record of all of this from Misha's perspective. It's inscribed on a slab of basalt called the Moabite stone, or sometimes called the Misha stone. It dates from this time. It was discovered in the 1800s, and now it's housed in the Louvre in Paris. So it's there to be visited and examined if you're interested. But I mention the Moabite stone because 
not only does it corroborate what the Bible tells us, but also because on that stone, Misha declares his dedication to the god Chemosh against Yahweh. He mentions Yahweh by name. So what does all this tell us in the first five verses? It tells us we are about to see a fight between two idolaters. Joram and Misha are not just enemies of one another. They are also enemies of the living God. They are both clinging to sin in defiance of God. And so what we are about to see is what most of us see most of the time. Godless people competing with one another for wealth and resources and position. This is the world we live in. Very often, there is no obvious good side. When it comes to leaders, very often there is no godly candidate. And that might cause you and me to ask, whose side is God going to be on? Which one of these bad options is God going to throw his weight behind? But the answer is, God is not on a side. God is not limited by how good or bad kings or presidents or prime ministers happen to be. If the only characters around happen to be rotten characters, you and I often despair about that. How can things ever work out if this is all there is to choose from? But it's not like that for God. Always, always God is working purposefully. He's working to his own plan for his own glory and the good of his faithful people. And the options might all look dire to you and me. But that doesn't limit God at all. He will move his perfect plans forward even when the only options we can see are dire options. And what that means is history is going to be full of surprises for us. The rest of our passage throws up two surprises. The first one comes in verses 6 to 23. These verses show us that some of God's enemies will prosper. We're told that Joram gathers his army to go and fight Misha. And we've seen this is going to be a war about money. Joram wants to get the lambs and the wool flowing again out of Moab and into Israel. And on the way to this battle, Joram picks up his dad's old friend, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. At the end of 1 Kings, we were given a summary of Jehoshaphat's life. We know that he is a king personally committed to the Lord. But in the past, we've seen, he was way too quick to join Ahab in battle. And here, he repeats his mistake with Ahab's son, Joram. The king of Edom also joins them. And Joram decides they're going to attack Moab from the south. So on the map, the route that they take looks like this. They go down below the sea to come 
towards Moab from the south. It's a roundabout route. But Joram has a reason for going that way. I mentioned the Moabite stone earlier. And that tells us Misha had been expecting an attack from Joram. And he had prepared for it by fortifying the north of Moab. He was assuming an attack would come that way from the north. It's the straightest route. But Joram is trying to be very clever. The only problem is the route that Joram takes is through the desert. And when you're taking three armies through the desert, plus their horses, plus the cattle that will be needed to feed everyone with, the water you can carry is not going to last you very long at all. And sure enough, within seven days, the situation is not looking good. Joram has been just a bit too clever. There was a very good reason Misha was not expecting an attack from the desert in the south. No smart person would try to take an army that way. But look how Joram reacts when things go wrong, down in verse 10. What, exclaimed the king of Israel, has the Lord called us three kings together only to deliver us into the hands of Moab? Joram is a man who clings to idolatry. He does not worship the Lord. And we'll see in a moment, he did not inquire of the Lord before he marched out to this battle. But as soon as his own plans go wrong... He decides to blame the Lord for the mess he's in. And Joram's reaction here is a very, very common one. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating the fruit he told them not to eat. They thought that the outcome would be great. They believed they would become like God. But it didn't turn out the way they hoped. Instead of feeling liberated, Genesis tells us, they felt a new shame. They felt a new distance from God. And how did Adam react to that? He tried to blame God. He said to God, the woman you put here with me, she gave me the fruit. What were you thinking, God, putting her here with me? It's pretty much your fault that we're in this mess now. It's certainly not my fault. That was Adam's reaction. And human beings have been taking the same approach ever since that day. Most of us will know someone who's never had any time for God. Never showed any love for his word or for his people. But when something goes wrong in their life, they're very quick to blame God for it. Don't talk to me about God. He did this to me. Or he took this thing away from me. The same people would never have thought to give God thanks for the good things in their life. But it's convenient to blame him when their own plans go wrong. And in fact, it's easy for any of us to develop a dose of Joram's attitude. 
to congratulate ourselves when our plans turn out well, like it was all down to our own wisdom and our own hard work. But then when things go pear-shaped for us, it's very easy to begin questioning God's goodness and God's wisdom. So now the picture we have of Joram is even worse than it was before. He's an enemy of God who expects God to sort out his problems, even his self-inflicted problems. And that makes what happens next all the more surprising. Because as Joram is mouthing off about the Lord letting them all down, Jehoshaphat says, maybe it's time to find a prophet of the Lord and inquire of the Lord. And that implies they have not done that up to this point. Jehoshaphat's always just a little bit late with his good suggestions. In any case, they find out that Elisha is nearby. And in verse 11, the phrase he used to pour water on the hands of Elijah means he used to be Elijah's apprentice. And we saw last week how Elijah's ministry was then handed over to Elisha. So the three kings troop off together to visit Elisha. And when they arrive, Joram gets a pretty frosty welcome in verse 13. Elisha said to the king of Israel, why do you want to involve me? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to deliver us into the hands of Moab. Elisha said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not pay any attention to you. But now bring me a harpist. Elijah is properly disgusted by Joram's attitude. But out of respect for Jehoshaphat, he will see if the Lord has any message. Why does he call for a harpist? Well, apparently, sometimes music and prophecy went together at this time. There's at least one other example of that in Scripture. But the music is not the main event here. The main event is the shocking message that comes from the Lord. And it was probably as shocking to Elisha who received it as it is to us. In the middle of verse 15, when the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came on Elisha and he said, this is what the Lord says. I will fill this valley with pools of water. For this is what the Lord says. You will neither see wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water. And you, your cattle and your other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also deliver Moab into your hands. You will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You will cut down every good tree, block up all the springs, and ruin every good field with stones. God promises two things. He will miraculously provide water in the desert, and he will give Moab into Joram's hand. And notice the details here about cutting down every good tree and blocking the springs and ruining the fields. 
Those are not commands from God. God is simply showing he knows what Joram intends to do. And he is going to let Joram do it. This is a surprise. Not just God's permission is a surprise, but his promise to provide water and deliver Moab to Joram. We know Joram is a king who clings to sin. That has been stressed for us. We know this war he's going to fight is not about the preservation of God's people. It's all about money. We know that Moab is no direct threat to Israel here. Misha is not trying to invade and crush Israel the way Ben-Hadad did earlier in Kings. Or at least he tried to do that. But Misha is not trying an invasion. This is a war outside Israel and it's all about wealth. In other words, there is no obvious reason for God to help Joram. Joram certainly doesn't deserve God's help any more than Misha does. What these verses show us is that some of God's enemies will prosper. And although God will have his reasons, you and I probably will not see those reasons. And so, there will be times when we are tempted to doubt God's wisdom. Earlier we read Psalm 73 together. And that was precisely the problem bothering Asaph when he wrote Psalm 73. He said at the beginning of that psalm, As for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, Asaph says, I saw God's enemies thriving, doing well, and it threw me off balance. I didn't think God's enemies could prosper. And so I felt like my world was turned upside down. But we shouldn't be thrown off balance. In one of Jesus' parables, he said that until the end, the wheat and the weeds are going to grow together, side by side. And sometimes the weeds are going to grow very, very well. And again, isn't this the world we live in? Isn't this what most of us see most of the time? Godless people not only pursuing wealth and power and success, but managing to get those things. We see it at school. We see it at work. We see it pretty much everywhere else too. And when you and I see God's enemies prospering, we have to see it from the Bible's perspective. Their prosperity is not an unfortunate glitch in God's system. It's not a flaw in the setup that has caught God out. It's part of God's plan. It moves his good purposes forward. Here in Second Kings, God is using one idolater, Joram, to bring judgment on another idolater, Misha. 
Misha who worships Chemosh in defiance of the Lord. And that's what happens. Verse 20. The next morning, about the time for offering the sacrifice, there it was. Water flowing from the direction of Edom. And the land was filled with water. Now all the Moabites had heard that the kings had come to fight against them. So every man, young and old, who could bear arms was called up and stationed on the border. When they got up early in the morning, the sun was shining on the water. To the Moabites across the way, the water looked red, like blood. That's blood, they said. Those kings must have fought and slaughtered each other. Now to the plunder, Moab. But when the Moabites came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and fought them until they fled. And the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites. Joram is a man who clings to sin. But here, he is God's instrument to bring judgment on a nation that clings to sin. And before you and I say that's not fair, why should Joram get to succeed? Before we say that, let's remember the story isn't finished. There's one more surprise still to come. And when that surprise does come, it shows that all God's enemies lose in the end. Misha, king of Moab, is now in the only city left standing, Kir Haraseth. But he's surrounded, and the situation looks desperate. And so Misha does something desperate. Look down to verse 26. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom. But they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. What Misha does here is clear. But what happens after that is not so clear. He sacrifices his son as an offering to his god, Chemosh. And then we're told the fury against Israel was great. What does that mean? Well, this reference to great fury, those words occur only a few times in the Old Testament. And every other time they occur, they are referring to the Lord's great fury. And so it makes sense to take it that way here as well. Up to this point, maybe we thought the Lord had chosen to bring judgment on one of his enemies and to pamper one of his other enemies. But now we know that is not the case. Joram has been God's instrument. But Joram is still an idolater. He's still an enemy of God. And in the end, he feels the fury of God. If we're wondering what exactly happened, the best explanation seems to be that the sacrifice of Misha's son 
acts like an inspiration to the Moabite army. They fight with a new energy. And they send Joram and his army running all the way back to Israel. I think that's probably what happened on the ground. But behind those energized Moabites was the Lord's great fury. So now Misha has become God's instrument to bring judgment on Joram, the idolater. The incident shows us a biblical truth. All God's enemies lose in the end. In the end, neither Joram nor Misha has gained anything from this. Remember, Misha rebelled in the first place so he could keep Moab's wealth for himself. But now he's left with a devastated country and a dead son. What about Joram? Well, he goes home without having conquered Moab. Yes, he's messed the place up, but he has not got the tribute money flowing again. In the end, both Joram and Misha's efforts have been for nothing. They're worse off in the end than when they started. And that is how it ends for all of God's enemies. A few moments ago, we heard from Asaph about how the prosperity of the wicked had thrown him off balance. But he goes on to say in that psalm, when he came to grasp what we've just been talking about, his perspective changed completely. He says in that psalm, I looked finally at God's enemies from God's perspective. And then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed? Completely swept away by terrors. All God's enemies lose in the end. The moment I'm reading the journals of Robert Falcon Scott, that's a name that used to be very well known, probably less so today. Robert Scott led the British expedition to the Antarctic in 1910. And part of the aim of that expedition was to be the first to reach the South Pole. And Scott's journals are fascinating to read. But every single person who's ever read them knows before they start reading them that the story ends badly. Before the journals were ever published, everyone knew Scott had been beaten to the pole by a Norwegian team led by Roald Amundsen. And everyone knew that Scott and his team had died in the snow on their way back from the pole. His journals were found with his frozen body not too far from safety of the base camp. And that means anyone who has ever read those journals, reads them, 
with a sense of what is coming at the end. For all the excitement and the success early on in the expedition, there's always the dark shadow of the end. You can't read those journals, you can't read a page of the journals without that. And when you and I look at men and women who are living in defiance of God, there is that same dark shadow. It hangs over every success and every high point of their lives. Their final destiny is ruin. All God's enemies lose in the end. If you and I only consider the present, we will often be confused. Because God's enemies often prosper in the present. They seem to live charmed lives a lot of the time. They seem to avoid any consequences for their foolishness and their sin. In the present, men and women seem to be defying God and succeeding. And the Bible tells us to expect that. And we probably won't understand what God is doing with his enemies here and now. We shouldn't expect to figure out why the weeds seem to be growing so well most of the time. Why they're often growing faster and stronger than the wheat is. But the Bible also tells us what we're seeing is not a glitch in God's system. It's not a flaw in his setup. He has his reasons It all fits his plan. And in the end, the weeds will be burned. All of them. And the wheat will be gathered safely into his barn. God's enemies will face his great fury. While his people shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. There is one battle that can never be won. It's the battle of trying to succeed in any lasting way while living in defiance of God. Joram looked for a while like he was succeeding. But he failed in the end like all of God's enemies. So if you're holding out against God and your life is good, Please don't misinterpret your situation. Don't interpret your health and success as a sign that all really is well and that it's going to end well. Consider what the Bible says about the end. Give up your rebellion now, come to Him for mercy. On the other hand, if you are trusting God, if you're clinging to him instead of your sin, all of this is reason for you to take heart. Whether you experience prosperity now or not, God is the strength of your heart and your portion forever. 
You can look forward to an eternal prosperity. And there's no enemy who can take that from you. And that's why, as God's people, we're able to sing these songs together. Songs that look to the future and the promises that God has made. We're going to close by doing that together. As we sing, rejoicing in hope, we wait for our King. And then, He shall reign forever.